KBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and as always, I'm very happy to have all of you listening to the show today. Um, our, our thoughts, of course, and I think I speak for many, many people up here in metro Atlanta, that's for sure, and other parts of the state, we're thinking about all of you down on the Georgia coast where we know the remnants of uh, what was one of the worst hurricanes to plow into the west coast of Florida has become a tropical storm, Ian, Uh, Nevertheless, it's still uh, bringing 65-mile-an-hour winds and storm surge as it moves up uh, towards Savannah, the Barrier Islands, and keeps going up the state. So we're thinking about you and hoping everyone down there stays safe uh, as the storm uh, moves through. Um, Let's get right to our panel because we have a lot to talk about, including talking a bit about the impact of Hurricane Ian, not just in terms of the damage it does, Um, But also, in a political year, in an election year, uh, what it means in an election contest. Um, So, let me introduce uh, Professor Andra Gillespie. You know her well as listeners to the show. Professor of Political Science and the Director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University. Andra, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. We're also joined by Professor Charles Bullock. Charles Bullock, as we've said many times on this show, has more history of the state of Georgia, I think, than all of the rest of us who do this show combined. He has been a professor, a distinguished professor at the University of Georgia for, is it six decades plus, Chuck? We're into the sixth decade, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, well, you're and still going strong, including a wonderful piece that you published in the Washington Post the other day about the Georgia election that we're going to talk about uh, during the show today. But thank you, Chuck, for being with us today. Always a pleasure. We're also joined by Rick Dent, who um, is the vice president of Matrix Communications, which does political consulting, government relations work and the like. But, Rick, we've always introduced you as the former communications director for Georgia Governor uh, Zell Miller. But what what we haven't, I don't think, ever really let our listeners know is that Zell Miller was the third governor who you actually worked for in your then young political career. You were with Ray Mabus when he was the Democratic governor of Mississippi. You went on to work with Don Siegelman when he was the Democratic uh, governor of uh, Alabama before coming to Georgia and working with Zell Miller. So you have an enormous amount of uh, experience in working inside government, and we're really happy to have you here today. Well, well, I'm going to need that because you have me with uh, two professors from schools I couldn't get into, so today's going to be a real challenge, <laughs> real challenge for me. <laughs> well, all right, let's start the challenge right away with you, Rick. Um, we know that Governor Kemp is uh, uh, talking to people in Savannah today about the storm, down there to survey what's happening, the damage, uh, assuring that state resources are going to be used to protect people and property. Um, But it's an election year. 
And I think it's worth a few minutes to talk about what the power of incumbency in a storm like this means to a candidate in the final stages of a very close contest. It can be a tremendous advantage, can't it? Uh, it? There's a good side and there's a bad side. Number one, you can get a bump out of it because you look like a leader, you look like you're in charge, you look like you know what you're doing, you're exercising your powers, people can see that. But there's also a huge downside. If you screw it up, if you look bad, you will fall a lot farther than you will go up. So you you got to be out there, you got to be in charge, and you got to do it right. And if you don't, it can hurt you more than it could ever help you. Uh, you reminded us of flooding in middle Georgia when you were working for Governor Miller. There were terrible floods in Macon and surrounding areas, and it was in, and and Governor Miller wanted to be certain that he was down there with the people, uh, showing how much he cared about what they were dealing with in an election year. Oh, absolutely. Plus, he he thought that was probably the most important part of his job description was doing that. And he was really hands-on as well. He didn't just lead the troops. I can remember there was a snowstorm in Atlanta, and I get a call, and a friend says, uh, your governor's on TV. And I go, what are you talking about? He says, your governor's on TV. And it's like, I'm the press secretary. I know where he's not on television. <laughs> said, go look. He had, he was on live television coming to work. He had ordered the state trooper to pull over. The connector was crowded with cars because of the snowstorm. And the governor was out there pushing cars to the side by himself. So, uh, it's uh, an opportunity. It sounds like, yeah, it sounds like Zell Miller doing something that uh, the rest of the staff doesn't know anything about and acting <laughs> <Exactly>. spontaneously. <laughs> Andre, that's, what I said. It, you know, that's what I said. Let, you should have let me know. I could have got more meat. I could have gotten nugget there. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, Andre Gillespie. Uh, I don't want to overstate uh, the value of this, but but at least for a couple of days, it does tend to take uh, the political news around the election out of the headlines. Look, we're starting our show today talking about a storm before we get to the real hardcore political conversation. Well, I mean, so we're not talking about the horse race, but we are still talking about politics, right? And we're talking about uh, evaluations of, of how an incumbent is performing that, especially so close to an election, are going to be at the top of mind of voters, right? It projects a certain air of competence. It projects empathy. Um, and if you screw it up, you look dumb and you look incapable of the job and people are going to remember that. And that might provide the opening for an opponent to be able to say, I can do a better job than that. So you don't want to do that. I mean, another place where people have studied this is especially in terms of emergency declarations. And so um, in places that have experienced natural disasters that haven't gotten emergency declarations, um, in particular, uh, you know, this has been studied sort of particularly for like presidents, um, and 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 and, but it also applies to governors as well. Like, you know, usually the people in that locality remember that and they penalize you at the polls uh, the next time around because they are thinking, what have you done for them lately? So uh, performance should actually be one of the key things that we look at when we're evaluating candidates and deciding who to vote for. And so this is an opportunity that incumbents have to show their mettle. 
Chuck Bullock, um, you and I are both old enough to remember uh, elections past where weather played a big influence. I want to talk about one that I recall from 1979 in the city of Chicago. The, uh, there was a mayor's race. The incumbent mayor was a guy named Mike Bolandic. He was a product of the Chicago machine, which dominated Chicago politics for decades. And um, in, he was running against an outsider named Jane Byrne. Um, there was no reason to expect Mike Bolandic would lose this race because Byrne was uh, really a long shot candidate. On New Year's Eve in 1978, the end of the year, a s- snow started falling in Chicago. And it kept falling off and on for weeks and weeks until, Chuck, there were more than like three feet of snow on the ground. The city did a terrible job clearing the streets. Cars were stuck on their streets for days on end. And in the middle of this chaos, Jane Byrne went out with a film crew as snow was falling and shot a commercial which had her snow falling down on her hair and on her coat, saying, this is what happens with a guy like Mike Bolandic. Jane Byrne's going to do better. And as a result of that, most, most political observers feel that commercial was broke the back of the Chicago machine and got Jane Byrne elected mayor of the city. Well, what that points out, and, and Ricky started off this conversation by pointing out also how important optics are. Make it look like you are there on the scene. And back when uh, Katrina hit New Orleans, President Bush was in his ranch out in Texas. So what does he do? Well, he comes to New Orleans. He doesn't go personally, but he flies over at low level. Not good enough. You need to be there on the ground. And again, you know, are you going to be able to, to turn the tide? No, not really. But by showing up, you then illustrate your role as the commiserator in chief. You are there. You're willing to hold hands. You'll talk to business owners. You'll talk to homeowners and commiserate with them. And you'll promise that you will bring relief to them. And uh, in essence, that's kind of what it sounded like uh, that Jane Byrne was doing, was promising that you know, had she been mayor, she would have gotten that relief to you. So this is uh, uh, an opportunity for the governor of Florida as he tries to promote his own presidential candidacy. And it, uh, you know, if, if this hits Georgia, then it's going to be worked to the advantage of, of our governor, too, as he you know, will be on the scene, undoubtedly. All right, let's turn to a conversation about the upcoming election. Um the state election board met yesterday, uh, and uh, several things that were noteworthy happened in that meeting. Uh, first of all, the board uh, said it voted to now ask the FBI to join state law enforcement, GBI officials, in investigating the voter data breach in uh, Coffee County, whereas we know a group of Trump election-denying allies went in, accessed the voter machines down there, and pulled out data about voters, about the actually could look at the machinery itself and how, in fact, it operates. And, um, and, and uh, we know that the state has been investigating this, um, but now that the board has met and, and made it clear that they want the FBI involved too, this story becomes even bigger. It's also a subject of the special grand jury Fonnie Willis has impaneled. And here's what uh, William Duffy, the chairman of the board, uh, said yesterday. He said, quote, what happened in Coffee County was despicable. The idea that people we entrust with this precious voting role would allow people that were not allowed to be in there, the consequences for that kind of conduct 
should be uh, significant. So, Andra, um, sending a clear signal that the board is hoping that there will be some uh, significant punishments for these people. Um, but at the same time, the election board was also trying to make a case to voters that they can have confidence in how the upcoming election will play out, that the results will be tallied accurately, fairly, and honestly. And unfortunately, Andrew, that's a very tall order uh, in the yeah. circumstances we're living in today. Sadly, I mean, it, it, for some people, it doesn't matter how uh, confidently you pull off this election, how many safeguards are in place. There are people who are going to question the results of the, the election solely because uh, their team didn't win on whatever election is important to them. Um, and it's going to be really hard to counter that because there are uh, no number of facts that are going to be able to dissuade people from that particular point of view. Um, I think in some ways uh, uh, the GBI and the Board of Elections had to be involved just to make sure that it's clear and that we can clarify that those compromised machines are not actually part um, of, of the group of machines that are going to be used on Election Day to sort of make that clear to people. And then there's also this other imperative uh, that I think is important. Um, I mean, SB202 does allow uh, the State Elections Board to take over counties uh, where there has uh, – been evidence of incompetence or malfeasance, um, and to not address this issue, um, which uh, you know is obvious, I think would uh, suggest that there was some type of double standard involved. Um, so uh, you know this is this is not probably what people who wrote that law were intending uh, to do. But like if, if if this is on the books, then you have to do your due diligence and make sure that this is um, investigated. Because just, you know, the video evidence that we've seen so far suggests that there was a major problem here. Chuck Bullock, weigh in on this. Yeah, uh, we, we know that uh, particularly Republicans have been very concerned about the way in which elections are operated and the reliability of the results. And uh, polling done earlier this year showed that, you know, 15, 18 months, whatever it was, away from the 2020 election, uh, most Republicans in Georgia at that point, you know, had serious concerns about how reliable the results would be here in 2022. So the irony is that the main evidence which has been found now, potential malfeasance, and again, this didn't involve counting votes or anything like that, but just the security of the electoral system, uh, takes place really at the hands of, of Republicans who were in charge of that election board down there in Coffee County. So, uh, now, will this you know, reassure any of the uh, Republicans who are quite concerned about this system? Probably not. And what it might do, though, is make some Democrats who up until this point have thought, well, yeah, the elections seem to work well and they're reliable. Maybe now some of them say, well, you know, with Republicans in charge of a county, does that mean that someone may be going in there and tampering with the results or revealing information about me, uh, which, which I don't want to necessarily have revealed? So this is not good for the system to, to have this evidence out there. And that this we can do now is, is to try to patch it after the fact. And if there are indeed charges brought against those involved with this, that might provide some reassurance. Yeah, Rick, uh, there's always throughout this story, and Chuck Bullock really pointed it out, uh, there's been this odd question about why, of all places, would you look for fraud in, in Coffee County, a county which Donald Trump won by 
more, at least 70%, if not 80% of the vote, I guess. And I think one of the answers is simply there was an election official there who was glad to let these outsiders in and do their, uh, it was, she was a Trump supporter herself, apparently, and she opened the door and said, come on in. You know, I think that's the part that scares me the most. When you look at the video, how nonchalant the whole break-in was, it's like, come on in. Let's be in here for hours. I'm going to play on my phone. Y'all let me know if you need anything from me. And they just had free reign of the system. At the same time, politics today are so warped. I can see some Republicans thinking, well, if it was that easy for us, what do you think the Democrats are going to do now? <laughs> All right. Well, we're, we are watching to see uh, just how uh, organizations like the Election Board, uh, we talked yesterday for a while on the show about the Carter Center launching a new initiative called the uh, Georgia Democracy Resilience Network, where they're trying to uh, come to bring together community organizations, faith leaders, business leaders, and others to help spread the word that there is such a thing as election integrity, but as we move less now than six weeks to the election, there are still going to be a lot of doubts out there about whether these uh, uh, results, if your candidate loses, do you think the election was rigged? And that's unfortunate. Hey, Chuck Bill, Bullock, how, I'd like hey, to, yeah, go ahead, Rick. I, I was going to say, how bad, that tells you what kind of shape we are in in the United States, that the Carter Center, which should be in maybe Nicaragua and Venezuela, it's in the United States trying to convince us that everything is secure and safe. It's mind-boggling, actually. Yeah. All right. Um, Chuck Bullock, I mentioned at the top of the show that you published a piece uh, in the uh, Washington Post uh, recently. If you don't mind, I, I want to read the lead that you wrote back to you and then open it up for a conversation <laughs> among, among all of us. Your lead says this. Not that long ago, Democrats thought Stacey Abrams was leading Georgia firmly into the blue column. Now they're worried, and they should be, not just because she is trailing in her second attempt at becoming the state's governor, but also because statewide elections in Georgia increasingly hinge on just the slightest moves in the electorate. That will probably be true for years to come in this neither red nor blue state. So talk to us a bit about uh, the arguments that you make uh, as you come out of that lead in the article. Yeah, the point is that if you can move 50,000 votes, you can take it from Democrat to Republican or vice, vice versa, you can you shape the outcome. And indeed, for the presidential election, you shift 6,000 votes away from Joe Biden, give them to Donald Trump, and then Donald Trump wins. And when you've got a situation in which such small movements of you know, just a few tens of thousands of votes, then it means that items which maybe are somewhat below radar nonetheless can have a huge impact. And so right now, yeah, if you look at what is the most important issue for Georgians, I'll tell you it's the economy, some aspect of that. Uh, abortion falls far, far down on that list. But if that abortion issue you know, mobilized you know, tens of thousands of women or to move some women who would otherwise vote for Republicans or vote Democrats, that shifts that kind of outcome. So, you know, I guess what, we, what it also boils down to is once we get to November 9 and we start looking back at this, there may be a whole series of very small elements that we point to and say, well, you know, each of these you know, tiny drips 
uh, once they aggregate together, that's what caused the election to come out the way it did, where I think often what we get to kind of lose our focus when we're looking kind of looking for massive shifts. Well, it doesn't take a massive shift in a state as evenly balanced as Georgia. Andrew? You know, one of, one of the things I appreciate um, uh, uh, about Dr. Bo's article is the fact that, uh, you know, he points out what a lot of us know in Georgia, um, that Georgia's uh, voting Democratic in the 2020 election cycle for, uh, you know, president and for Senate isn't necessarily a harbinger of a blue wave, but just a sign of competitiveness. And so there's this national narrative that people get caught up in that justifies, you know, national news outlets sending their reporters down here to report um, that I think sometimes overstates what's happening. And so, like, this is just a caution to understand that we're just we're in a competitive moment. Elections are going to be close. Um, what happened in 2020 is not necessarily a guarantee that you're going to see consistent Democratic victories, you know, from here on out, or at least for the next decade or so. So I, I just think that, you know, it's just a reminder for us to be realistic about what we saw and also to be realistic about the ways that we still need more data in order to really establish the trend going going forward. You know, at least as far as some of the issues that people are talking about, one of the questions that I have is that I think most surveys don't ask the abortion question in the right way, um, mm. right? People care about lots of issues, um, and people who are, are incensed by the Dobbs decision might not be single-issue voters in that domain. But if you ask the question, basically, all else being equal, will a candidate's stance on abortion sort of make you uh, more or less likely to vote for them? So there, are, there are different wordings of that, um, so I'm paraphrasing here. And there are some people who might say, yeah, a, a candidate's stance on abortion may be a deal-breaker for me, all else. And that, I think, is the question that I am very curious as to whether or not that's actually going to drive vote choice and actually kind of explain the outcomes of elections that we're going to see this cycle. So, you know, if there's anybody out there who's like, you know, in charge of writing the exit polls, like that's the question you should ask, not just like, you know, what's the most important issue? Rick, one of the things that um, uh, Chuck Bullock points out in his piece In fact, let me read you a little bit because it's great. He says, like a creature in a horror movie, former President Donald Trump looms over the Kemp-Abrams contest. Kemp famously drew Trump's ire by refusing to indulge his false claims of winning Georgia in 2020, but he also declined to counter Trump's vitriol. In seeking re-election, the governor needs to maintain that delicate balance. And what he goes on to point out, of course, Rick, is that uh, when Kemp refused to go along with with uh, Trump, he may in fact have done like Brad Raffensperger in the Secretary of State's contest may in fact have done himself some good in those uh, voters who are uh, on the fence, who are independent voters, who may want to turn to somebody like Kemp and Raffensperger because they did did stand firmly against the fake election charges. Well, you know, it was one of those ironies that we discussed right after the primary, which was the fact that the governor and the secretary of state came out of those primaries looking like moderates. They're not moderates, but compared to everybody else now and the way they handled that election crisis, they look like moderates. And yes, there, there may be this sliver that we're concerned about that are drifting over and supporting them. You know, you've heard us talk about the college-educated white suburban female being one of the keys. And one of the key questions of this election 
is going to be this. Did Trump hovering over everything scare them enough to move to the Democratic side? But now are they going to drift back to where they may feel more comfortable? Or does abortion help them stay on the Democratic side? And I think that's going to be one of the key questions of this election. Mm -hmm. Um, Chuck, you also point out that if Trump shows up here, uh, and we know that he's been just on his own showing up in states like Ohio and Pennsylvania without an invitation from the candidates there, he could well do the same thing here in Georgia. And you believe that that could cause uh, some real trouble for people like uh, Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger. Well, that's exactly right, because as Rick was just pointing out, that those voters <laughs> who are still thinking of themselves as Republicans but can't bring themselves to Donald Trump, and if he shows up here, then that, that reminds them of what they disliked about the Republican ticket two years ago and carried on through that January runoff. And so they may again show up on the Democratic side, or at least not be willing to vote for the Republicans. They may not vote Democratic, but if they simply sit it out, don't show up for the election, that you know, also can be devastating for a Republican candidate. Uh, before we get off of uh, this overview of where uh, 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 we think this race, especially between Kemp and Abrams, stands right now, um, Andre, let me ask you uh, this question, because... Uh, we have been seeing this uh, raft of polls that have come out in the last couple of weeks, last week particularly, um, and all of them point to Kemp having at least a slight edge over Stacey Abrams. The AJC had had it up to eight points, although there are people who question the sample and the way they screened in that poll to get to that 8%. Nevertheless, the polls do show Kemp trending as a leader in this race. Our listeners always say to me, polls, I don't believe polls, I don't want to have anything to do with hearing about polls. But we do have to pay attention to them as snapshots, yes? Um, Yes, we also do need to pay attention to sampling frames and so issues of whether or not new voters were screened out um, entirely as part of a likely voter screen, you know, I I think is a legitimate question. it's not that you can't believe polls. It's just that these races are going to be decided by very narrow margins. Um, and so when your surveys have margins of error that are in the range of plus or minus three, most of them, and four, that means that somebody's going to have to be ahead by, uh, you know, in the case of three, something more than six, in the case of something like plus or minus four, something more than eight, for us to be able to say with statistical confidence that one person is ahead of the other. So most of these surveys, the margins that, you know, Brian Kemp has, or even the ones that Herschel Walker or Raphael Warnock have um, in their poll, usually keep the margin kind of within the confidence interval, which means we can't definitively say. And if you want us to be able to say that with a certain level of precision, we're going to have to vastly expand the number of people that we talk to. That's prohibitive from a cost standpoint. So just understand that we're sort of pinpointing a range. These surveys are telling us that this election is close which I think is an important thing, uh, an important piece of information to convey. Um, as, a, as a researcher, I'm actually more interested in the other questions and how they relate to vote choice to figure out how to explain why people are voting the way that they're voting. Um, and I'm less interested in the, the horse race question. But, I mean, we can't fault, you know, it being it takes thousands of dollars to get those samples of five and 800 or 1,000 people, right? I and mean, I can't fault people for not being able to afford 
to be able to get a sample of 10,000 to get you kind of the, the margins that would um, make the, that, that horse race, uh, you know, granularity a little bit more specific and, and, and a little bit more reliable. We just can't afford to do that. Rick, before we get to the break, um, you've run a lot of political campaigns. When, when you see these polls that, that have been showing Kemp ahead a bit, uh, how troubling is it, it, it? Does that make things for the Abrams campaign to reestablish, to really get their momentum moving forward? Does it put them in a defensive posture? Is it harder for them to move ahead, or do they just keep on going? You got to keep on going, but it does hurt. It hurts with fundraising. Not that you could see it with the Abrams campaign. I could say with down ballot races, especially, it really crushes those folks because when a bad poll comes out. That's all anybody wants to talk about for two, three, or four days, and then they begin to withdraw, and they don't want to give you any more money until they see something better. So it does hurt. Andre, you want to make one last quick comment before we get to the break? Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes the sort of the national horse race setup of this has been super problematic because we forgot that this is not an open sea contest like it was in 2018. Right? right. Stacey Abrams is running against an incumbent with a record who's liked by members of his party. Right. So it was going to be harder. And so if everybody sets this up like this was just going to be she's going to build on the momentum of 2018, like it's November 15th, 2018. Right. Like that was just the wrong position to be in. And so she's always been the underdog in this race, just by virtue of the fact that she's running against an incumbent this time. Well, I would argue that those of us in the media may have played a role in creating those higher expectations for Stacey Abrams. We were we were the ones who in many ways built her up. Um, whether we whether we like her politics or not, as a huge national star in the Democratic Party, a celebrity, which, of course, as we're going to learn in this next segment, the Kemp campaign is now using against her. But I think, in fact, the media, and I include myself, has to take some responsibility for why the expectations that this should be an easier contest for Abrams are off base, because as we all know, incumbency is a very tough thing. Beat. All right, let's get to the first break of the show. We'll be back with more in a minute. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Professors Charles Bullock and Andre Gillespie and Rick Dent on today's edition of Political Rewind. Rick, um, you really have become, I think it's fair to say, the go-to person to talk about the advertising that's going on in Georgia races right now. And so we always want to give you a chance to talk to us about what's happening in these races. Um, I'm going to read the numbers that you sent to all of us, if you don't mind. Uh, first of all, you tell us that in the Senate campaign, as of right now, there has been a total of $230 million spent on advertising. $123 million of it is Democratic spending, um, and $103 million is Republican spending. Warnock has spent almost uh, twice as much as uh, uh, the Republican Leadership Committee or 
uh, Herschel Walker himself. So there's the Senate race. In the governor's race, the total spending is now $84 million, 49 of it for, for the Democrats and 34 for the Republicans. Okay, so those are just numbers, and they're hard to keep in your head on a radio show. But what do those spending numbers tell you, Rick? Well, first of all, uh, let me tell you what I'm dealing with. I just got a text from Greg Bluestein that told me to stop screwing up the show. So I just want you to know what I have to deal with. <laughs> You know, this ongoing battle that you bring to our air between you and Blue State really takes away from the tone that I try to set of respect <laughs> for one another. But go ahead. <laughs> there, there, there are a couple of key trends. Number one, the advantage that the Democrats and Warnock have in that Senate race is about to be gone. If you look ahead at October 1st, the Warnock side is going to spend about $6.7 million a week on ads. The Republicans are spending 6.4. So if that continues, that means there's no longer a money advantage in terms of television advertising, and that's a big win for Republicans. It means, by and large, they've held on, because remember, Warnock has been on television since the first week of January, and he has still only got, what, a two-point, three-point lead? Especially when you consider the pounding that Herschel Walker has taken both on the airwaves and in free media. So that's an important trend. Now, we all know that Senator Warnock has raised more money than anyone in the nation probably. He still can spend that on other things like direct mail, GOTV. But in terms of television advertising right now, going into October 1, they're about to be equal. And that's a big deal. All right. So let's talk about that a little bit, uh, Chuck and Andra. Um, obviously, one of the major themes that, that both the PAC supporting Walker and the Walker campaign itself have hit upon is uh, Herschel Walker's history of violence. Rick Dent, just a little while ago, before the show went on the air, sent us the latest commercial uh, that uh, speaks to that point. Let me play the audio of that spot, and then let's talk about it. Walker's violence. He held the gun to my temple. Herschel Walker threatening to kill his wife was not an isolated incident. He made violent threats at least 10 times over a decade, threatening to shoot several people in the head even threatening a shootout with police. In 2019, Herschel Walker talked about choking his employees. Now, his own aides admit they fear his mood swings and instability. Herschel Walker is violent. He shouldn't be senator. Georgia honors responsible for the content of this. So that's a pack ad, Andra. Um, we've been seeing a lot of ads expressing the same uh, theme. Walker is violent. Uh, but it has not done, it, I mean, if anything, Walker's numbers seem to be improving in his polling against uh, Warnock. Well, I expected some tightening, especially as we got into the fall. And so I think everybody, you know, should be prepared for that. And I imagine that the Warnock uh, campaign anticipated that. This new ad seemed to be uh, designed to address issues that bringing up the sort of threats against his first wife. Uh, happened 20 years ago, um, and that the, the, the clips that they're airing are actually from the late aughts. 
from 2007, I believe, or 2009. Um, and so by saying, oh, no, 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 this happened a couple years ago, it didn't just happen to the first wife and the dead girlfriend, but that this re- re- reflects other people. I think there's this idea to say that actually, no, he doesn't have his mental health issues under control, and that this person is somebody who is temperamentally unfit to serve. Um, we'll see if this has um, an impact. Um, it probably needs to be coupled with other things about Walker being unprepared for the job. So one of the things that we haven't seen a whole lot of is sort of uh, trying to make light of, I mean, he's gotten, there's been a lot of free media that's talked about uh, uh, Walker's kind of nonsensical answers to substantive issues. um, And we'll see if some of that comes out, especially after their debate, if, if, if Walker makes a gap, but that may be the other um, line of defense here too, but I, this just seems to be an update um, uh, to respond to the critique that they're just bringing up old stuff. Um, uh, Chuck, I want to bring you in, but before I do, let's let's uh, uh, expand on what Andre just said. That they're going to find uh, the Warnock campaign will have to have other issues to go after Walker with. So let's listen to a different spot that is now uh, attacking Herschel Walker. Um, it's basically expands on a theme they've used before, which is that Walker tends to not be honest about a lot of the things he says. Here it is. I'm Raphael Warnock, and I approve this message. It's Herschel Walker versus the truth. 15% for everything from my company going to charity. All my money going to charity. So I didn't get any for money. For years, Herschel Walker has been claiming his company supports these charities. But a new report says it's all a lie. The charities have no record or recollection of any gifts from Herschel Walker's company in the last decade. Is Herschel Walker really ready to represent Georgia? So, Chuck Bullock, first of all, I think it's important to point out that that ad is slightly misleading. The New York Times article does not say that uh, Herschel Walker was lying. In fact, what they say is it is conceivable that he was giving money to charities, not necessarily the ones that he has talked about giving uh, money to. In other words, I thought when I read that article, it was surprisingly inconclusive in determining whether Walker is charitable in his giving or not. Nevertheless, let's take those two ads together, and what do you think about their effectiveness against Walker? Well, if we look at polling over time, what we see is that you know Herschel has been hit numerous times. I think this actually the, the visual of this shows that this is Herschel versus the truth number five. So this is the fifth different uh, ad pointing out where there's inconsistencies between what he says and what reality may be. There are then the long-running ads about Herschel's violence against his wife, and now broader context. There have been questions about Herschel's preparation to do the job as a senator. By that, I mean his background, his awareness, his knowledge about the various kinds of issues he would confront. So all of these have been you know, created negative images for him. But what's happened? Well, over the last six or seven months, he's gone from being two, three, four points down to being even or even maybe a point or two ahead. So what does this tell us? Well, part of what it tells us is that Donald Trump may not be the only person we could stand in broad middle of Broadway and shoot someone and you know walk away from it and nobody would care. But that uh, looks like uh, maybe what's happening is this closing of the gap between uh, the two, two Senate candidates is that a number of Republicans who several months ago had real concerns and cannot bring myself to vote for Herschel Walker. He's a great football player, but is he ready for the Senate? But a number of them are saying, well, I may still have those concerns, but my top interest is in seeing a Republican majority in the Senate. And if that means you got to elect Herschel Walker to represent Georgia to be one of those voters, 
yeah, I can shut my eyes, grit my teeth, and, and do that. So now, what is Herschel Walker doing in response? Number one, he's following a trend that is starting nationwide with Republicans. Apparently, they've seen this in the polling. He's attacking on the crime issue, and that's starting to happen to Democrats all over the nation right now. So he's attacking Warnock right now on no bail, letting criminals out. Guess what? Defund the police. Soft on crime. That's number one. And number two, he's moved to the trans athlete issue as well as he moves to the right. So those are probably two long-term trends that are going to continue for the rest of this campaign. Well, Rick, let's listen uh, to an ad that you shared with all of us in which uh, the Walker campaign does go after Warnock on the issue of crime. Now Atlanta is seeing murders on the rise. The city rocked with four shootings and three deaths. The city's increase was just named the 10th highest in the nation. The Democrats' answer to rising crime? Defund the police. Put criminals ahead of victims. Raphael Warnock called police thugs, then cut their funding. Now he wants to end cash bail, putting criminals back out on the street. I'm Herschel Walker. I approve this message because stopping crime starts by keeping bad guys in jail. Chuck, uh, it, it, this ad, as, as Rick points out, has become part of the national Republican messaging. And, of course, it's interesting because Democrats are attacking violence because of a gun proliferation of guns. Whereas Republicans are saying uh, Democrat permissiveness, anti-police activities uh, all have led to the rising crime across the country and here in Georgia. Right. And we know that is a that is a concern of people that trans athletes it may be a small one. But again, that might be the kind of element that just moves at 10, 15, 20,000 voters that could make a difference. So, yeah, like one of them is kind of broad gauge the crime. And yeah, that's. That's not unique to Georgia, and it's going to happen around the country, but it certainly plays to a number of fears. And the trans athlete thing um, plays to fears in a different sense, in that it may be particularly concerning to to women, to mothers of daughters, uh, about the fairness, the, the competition which their their daughters are going to be competing. So both of these tap into uh, to some concerns that things are changing, and they're changing in ways that uh, you don't want to see them change. Uh, I got to get to a final break in today's show, but when we come back, we'll have more with this great panel. So you know what? Um, we've got some Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp ads that I thought we'd get to today. But you know what I'd like to do? I think I'd like to hold those for tomorrow to talk more about how they're playing out in the governor's race. Because I think that that um, Rick and Chuck, you, you both pointed out this tack to the right that Herschel Walker has really taken uh, right now, uh, even even as he's in the midst of his, uh, 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 what does he call it, the Unite Georgia bus tour. And I think this is worth talking about. Um, so, uh, uh, Rick, you started this uh, by telling us that Herschel Walker is speaking out more strongly about transgender individuals, transgender individuals in, in athletes, of course, uh, in, in sports but he's also started just talking about it in a more general way. Um, will God recognize a transgendered individual when they get to heaven? Um, Rick, it's just one of the ways in which he is really tacked harder to the right. Uh, 
Absolutely. It's a good move for him, especially on this issue, and here's why. He knows for a fact that he has a majority of Georgians with him on this one particular issue. He also knows that Warnock is, is actually in a box, is in a corner on this issue, and can't really move away from it. A campaign loves to have that kind of issue because you can just pound on your opponent knowing he can't do anything or she can't do anything about that club until you stop hitting them. So he's got a majority with him, and he can take advantage of it. And, and as Chuck said, maybe this is only a sliver, but again, we're talking Georgia and slivers count. You know, I, Walker is trying to tap into anger in the Republican base to get them to turn out the vote. So, I mean, I think that that, you know, is, is consistent with, with what uh, Chuck and Rick have, have been saying. Um, you know, also, he's tried to sort of pinpoint the issue with which you could make uh, Reverend Warnock, not Senator Warnock, but Reverend Warnock look hypocritical. Um, and, you know, uh, evangelical Christians in particular uh, but some other Christians more than likely take a different view about gender roles and about what to do about gender dysphoria. And so this is the type of issue where uh, he may be able to make some inroads there, at least have people kind of question some of their decisions, maybe even depress turnout amongst people who would be likely Warnock supporters. Um, you know, but one of the things that I find interesting is that these all tap into um, kind of national tropes, not that this, these aren't issues at the state level, um, Governor Kemp certainly has supported a tran uh, ban on, on trans women and, and, and sports at the KC 12 level. Um, but like, these are all national kinds of issues, like especially on issues related to defund the police and cash bail. Um, you know, the, a U.S. senator really isn't at the forefront of redesigning police departments, though there can be actual national rules. I mean, there was negotiations that failed between Tim Scott and, and Cory Booker sort of related to criminal justice reform and policing. Um, and so I don't, I don't want to discount the notion there, but in particular about cash bail, right? Like cash bail issues are, are inherently local issues. That's not necessarily something that we would see the U.S. Senate get involved in, but you can use that to bludgeon the, the idea that like all Democrats are soft on crime and they're, they're the reason why we're seeing the increases that we have. And, oh, how convenient is it that like this is a black guy, so you believe it, you don't even question the fact that uh, Senator Warnock actually doesn't support defund the police. Um, and, you know, and, and you won't get the charge of racism, right, because the black guy levying this charge against another black guy. So there, there, there's a lot that's going on there. Um, and there are many things that I think Walker can actually use to his benefit. I think the question will be for all of these issues, are we better off for having this discussion or are these just kind of like, you know, pandering points? Um, Chuck, uh, he's also the AJC reports, having followed him on his bus tour, uh, that he is slamming Democrats over their immigration policy. He's talking about wokeness in the public school system, which is destroying innocent minds. He says that uh, that democratic policy suggests that to kids that you're white, you're black, uh, you shouldn't be friendly with people of the other race. You need to get get away from stuff. I mean, th this is all. Uh, it, it it all strikes me as being part of this. Uh, uh, attempt by Republicans to say to voters, the world, this is a world you don't understand. The world is changing dramatically, and you are, you're not part of it anymore. Yeah, and, and that uh, 
it is a common theme for Republicans. But, uh, you know, the world that you grew up in, the world that you like is being attacked from all sides. And Democrats are the ones who are leading that kind of attack. May I elaborate on something that uh, Andra mentioned, and that is uh, white evangelicals. Okay, the white evangelical vote in Georgia is the Republicans' core constituency. And by that, I mean the group of voters who are most loyal to the Republican Party. And they, white evangelicals will vote for Republicans 80, even 90 percent of the time. So what we're seeing is that here in Georgia, the cohesiveness of white evangelicals is roughly the same as the cohesiveness of the black vote. And there are more white evangelicals in Georgia than there are African-Americans. So it is important then for a Republican to be able to tap these kinds of concerns that move that component of the electorate in order to mobilize them and make sure that they show up and vote on November 8th. So by creating, we know fear is a a stronger emotion than love. So by putting Mm. out these items which concern people about my world is changing, I don't know why, I don't like it, Uh, and here's a party that says that they're going to be able to keep things much the way they were, that's sufficient motivation for me then to go out and pull the Republican lever. I'm about to quote George Wallace, but I am from Alabama. George Wallace used to say, people will vote for you because of the people you hate. And I think that's an element that underlines all of what we're talking about. And and it is about you're representing someone who's not me. Therefore, you, you don't understand me and you don't understand my family. I'm voting for the other guy. Um, Rick, another thing I noticed about a couple of these ads is that the candidates make appearances in a couple of them. So this new ad, where where which talks about Walker's violence against any number of people, try threatening to shoot any number of people, we see Raphael Warnock at the top of that ad saying, "I'm Raphael Warnock, and I approve this ad." We see Herschel Walker at the end of the ad attacking Warnock over what the Walker campaign claims is his stand on crime, we see Walker in that spot. You know, we know that pa- that candidates often hide behind pa- the PACs that support them, but we're starting to see the candidates show up and attack the other guy. Well, we, we are, and that's significant in that, you know, legally you cannot coordinate with the PACs and your yeah. friends. So you, you can't coordinate. You can't just go, oh, I'm going to rely on them to do what needs to be done. At some point, the campaign has to step forward and go, my polling says X, I need to do this. I can't depend on someone else to do it for me. And that's kind of what you're saying. I, I, I wish, can I take another hour, Natalie Mendenhall? Can we just go, go into NPR's? Pro- no, we can't. All right. Because we are completely out of time. And I would love to be able to continue this conversation with professors Andre Gillespie of Emory University, with Charles Bullock of the University of Georgia, and with us, as I've come to call him, our, our political ad expert, uh, Rick Dent. Thank you all for a wonderful conversation today. Um, We will continue talking a bit about the ads on tomorrow's show. We just didn't have time to get to them today, but we're going to look at what's going on with the Abrams-Kemp campaign in terms of the messages they and the PACs are putting their money behind as we head toward Election Day. Um, That's it for us for today. We'll be back again, as I said, with a brand new show tomorrow again. We're thinking about you down there along the coast of Georgia. Please, please, more than ever, uh, take care and stay safe. 
I'm Bill Nygut. See you all tomorrow. Bye.